Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at the Inner Service Industry Training, Simulation, and Education Conference that began today in Orlando, Florida. But first, Earlier this month, the Reagan Institute issued a bipartisan task force report on national security and U.S. manufacturing competitiveness. The report's title, A Manufacturing Renaissance Bolstering U.S. Production for National Security and Economic Prosperity. The task force was co-chaired by former Lockheed Martin Chairman, President and CEO Marilyn Hewson and the CEO of Bridgewater Associates, uh, Dave McCormick, who served as the former Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs during the George W. Bush administration. One of the task force members is my friend Renan Horowitz, the president and CEO of Elbit Systems of America. Renan, uh, absolute pleasure having you back on. Hope you and yours are having a very happy Hanukkah. You're welcome, Vago. It's a pleasure to talk about the, uh, the report. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. You and I uh, had a great opportunity to talk at AUSA, uh, and one of the things we talked about, and I think you mentioned uh, the report at the time, you guys were still staffing it in its in its last phases, and we talked a little bit about uh, manpower. I want to get into each of the specific elements of it, but it was a great, it is a great report, and it discusses everything from skills needed, uh, education, pu- uh, public-private partnerships uh, for investment in domestic um, cap- manufacturing capabilities. You guys even uh, try to tra- tackle a global regulatory environment, right? Get the G7 and the Quad uh, involved in this. From your standpoint, what are the key takeaways? Well, Vago, first of all, I'd, I'd like to emphasize this was a, a really good effort. I really enjoyed the participation. Bipartisan task force, and especially these, these days with all the rancor around, just the collaboration between the members. We actually engaged uh, also uh, uh, people from industries outside the aerospace and defense, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, and others, former policymakers, uh, congressional, co- Congress uh, uh, people. And, and uh, it was really a, a very, very productive uh, effort, uh, you know, um, uh, to, to really produce these, these findings and produce the report. So we've looked at uh, the different challenges that are faced uh, that are facing the U.S. manufacturing competitiveness and that the impact on national security. We've looked at uh, technical skill gaps, at productivity, at capital investment, the fragility of the supply base, uh, coordin- lack of coordination within government, and, and as you mentioned, the international framework. and uh, And we came up with with four main signature recommendation. One very important is around scaling up the workforce development programs to increase the ability, the availability of, of uh, manpower, skilled manpower that can be available to, uh, to U.S. companies. A second thing is, is uh, standing up a public-private capability to finance investments in domestic manufacturing, especially those that are critical for national security. Uh, modernizing the Defense Production Act for the 21st century. And I've learned a lot through this effort about uh, where it was in the past and, and how we can leverage it. And we can talk more about that today. And the last is a, is a new forum starting with G7 and Quad countries 
to really complement some of the existing efforts and to provide some better governance and standards around data, around supply chain resiliency, and so forth. So overall, I think uh, uh, we, we try to be focused and bring up things which are uh, actionable and doable, and also highlight what are the success measures we wanted to achieve. Uh, so uh, all of this, right, hinges on, as they would say in Hebrew, right, tachlis, like the, the the business end of this, right? Um, yes. Let's first talk about manpower, right? Um, when we spoke at AUSA, we did talk about a little bit of the manpower challenge. And if you look at it for the United States to maintain its competitiveness, as well as national security capabilities, you guys are talking about 500,000 engineers and technical people a year that you need, right, to support this uh, ecosystem. What's what's the right way to get there? Because there is a concern that the United States is not producing um, the kind of jobs as quickly as we need them, especially as we look uh, not just as, at the great resignation that's sweeping the nation, but also the great retirement where a lot of this Cold War talent is, is approaching the end uh, of their careers and beginning to retire. So first of all, you know, we, we've looked at what we believe the government should be doing and, and some of our specific practical recommendations were around uh, what the Department of Education should do with regards to uh, making federal education grants programs more transferable to specific skills training. We've looked at, uh, at combination and alignment between what the Department of Labor does in the Department of Education. Uh, we looked at, at how the government should incentivize colleges and universities to develop credential pathways for people. Because not, as, as you know, not all the skills are skills that require necessarily a four-year academic degrees. There's a lot of effort around apprenticeships and other types of skills that we need. We also highlighted that there's a responsibility from U.S. headquartered manufacturers that should focus on, on increasing the attractiveness of, of how we attract this workforce, the whole environmental, social, and governance efforts, uh, the ability for us to work and commit as industry to fund new trade schools and apprenticeship programs over the next decade. So it really is a combination of both private sector and government workforce initiatives that we think is critical in order to produce the type of talent that the industry needs. Um, one of the other areas where you talk about public-private uh, partnership uh, is to raise capital, right? There is a, a lot of concern that foreign capital, particularly Chinese capital, and not just Chinese capital, right? Chinese private capital uh, is not as onerous as it is uh, government capital that's making it into the United States and made significant investments to get its hands on American intellectual property. What are I, I know the Trump administration uh, tried to convince people not to accept Chinese money. That that was kind of a very tough sell. But many folks have been talking about creating public-private uh, vehicles, whether it's an InQtel style, uh, style fund, right? I mean, the CIA's uh, investment fund, where every successful vent, uh, uh, technology company has a little bit of InQtel DNA in it. What are some of the mechanisms you guys are looking to create to make it easier? Uh, to make sure that clean money is getting uh, to American startup companies as well as um, more mature enterprises? Well, first of all, it's the recognition that the industry needs 
capital infusion in order to upgrade, to improve productivity. We're talking about the industry 4.0. We're talking about the digital revolution. We're talking about infrastructure for both, uh, you know, heavy manufacturing and, and other type of electronics, electro-optics, chip manufacturing and so forth. So there is a, a, a thirst for capital. And I think most of our recommendations are around providing multiple avenues to get that, uh, that uh, capital. So a suggestion to consider was a, a new government sponsor entity, uh, very much like the German KFW, the Japan Finance Corporation, which will basically provide independent, serve as an independent financial institution to provide capital. We, we suggested to explore an expansion of the Development Finance Corporation uh, that can provide finance and insurance. We didn't just talk about providing money, but even just providing guarantees, a manufacturing born guarantee that can provide liquidity for manufacturers. Uh, and, and definitely encouraging and facilitating private capital funds, making it easy for US private capital to be invested. Because again, the realization is there is a need for the capital. I think the whole thing around uh, the easy money from the Chinese is because we need to provide more varied, easier ways to raise capital from trusted sources. And that was the nature of our, uh, our recommendations, Vago. One, one of the other issues, as you mentioned, was uh, changes to the Defense Production Act. And as you said, right, I mean, a lot of people never even thought of the Defense Production Act, uh, even chief executives, until it really came into focus because of, of COVID. What has to change? Why? And what are the COVID lessons that should shape those changes? So, you know, you know the, the Defense Production Act uh, used to be much more expensive. I mean, it started in the 1950s, uh, actually even before to remove uh, uh, defense supply chain bottlenecks during wartime. I don't think we've really, we are really using that to the maximum extent of what we can. So some of the things that we've talked about is, for example, how do you facilitate empowering federal state officials to designate special manufacturing zones and fast track permitting. I can tell you from personal experience uh, with our expansion in the last few years for Elbit America, permitting, getting licenses, getting approvals is a big deal. Um, how, do you, how do you require federal agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA to expedite some of the permitting associated with any of these DPA top programs? Um, how, do you, how do you enable uh, manufacturers and government agency to develop facilities and hire employees in economically um, uh, empowerment zones, uh, places where uh, labor is available and actually the economic impact of, of expanding capabilities can be very, very good. Um, developing a centralized supplier database where we can actually track those things, widen the talent base that we attract. So there's a lot of different elements of the DPA that can be reimagined and I would say reused or, or purposed, repurposed specifically to help expansion of our manufacturing capacity and accelerate, make it easy for people to invest in it. Um, and well, what is it you think that companies should be doing, uh, Ronan? Because companies ultimately, right, are, are always trying to balance uh, the future with the present, right? I mean, everybody has a fiduciary responsibility uh, to make money. 
uh, for their investors. Uh, on the other hand, the question is how you balance that, right? I mean, you're a company that does a lot of independent research uh, and development. So, so you shoot maybe for uh, what, what folks would argue maybe is a more sustainable profit margin over time as you try to balance these strategic interests. There are other companies, for example, that may have a higher uh, 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 profit return uh, tolerance, let's say, uh, ultimately. I mean, what's the obligation that companies have uh, in this ecosystem from your perspective? Well, I, I, I'll just, I can just give you an example of something that I'm very proud of that we're doing. So in addition to everything we've done, investment, R&D and stuff, we uh, participated in the last few months in a, in a major effort in, uh, in the, the county over here in the city in Fort Worth, which is one of the largest cities in the U.S. And basically, we have been successful in convincing Texas A&M uh, which is, by the way, uh, one of the, it's the largest recipient in the United States of government research funding to open a new campus, engineering and technology campus in Fort Worth. And I attended a couple of weeks ago uh, a great ceremony with uh, John Sharp, the chancellor, and um, several others. I represented the, the business community here on a partnership that we're going to do. They're going to put together the campus we committed uh, to work with them on different domains. And that's an example of where we as industry teaming with academic institutes and the city, the local government, and hopefully we'll even see some federal support to that to really create a magnet for talent, for workforce in the DFW Metroplex. So I, that's just an example. And I think we can do more with that. I know several of the companies, I know Lockheed is very engaged in apprenticeships. Um, uh, Bob Simmons, who represented Boeing on the task force, I know they're investing in it. So I think there's a whole lot of areas where we, as, as aerospace and defense industry, can do more to help push that forward and strengthen our, our resiliency, create this renaissance, as, as the report says. And Renan, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one last question. We're uh, all convening uh, in California at the Ronald Reagan uh, Presidential Library uh, and Museum in Simi Valley, California for the Ronald Reagan National Defense uh, Forum. We're getting together in person. Sadly, last year, uh, the event was, was canceled. So the last time everybody saw each other was in 2019. Uh, from your perspective, what do you think are going to be the big things that we're going to hear uh, at, at the event this year, right? I mean, I know that you work closely with Roger Zakheim and the team. Uh, any, any sense on, on what some of those themes are going to be when we, when we all get together in Southern California? First of all, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to the forum this year. I think uh, there's pent up demand for interaction and in, in working together. I, I think probably what I'm looking to hear is uh, a little bit better clarity where this current administration wants to take uh, national security and where we're heading. Uh, you know, how do, how do we catch up on something to definitely China will be a, a big topic of attention with uh, recent threats on Taiwan and others, uh, peer competition, alliances and, and partners, the whole discussion we had right now, and workforce. I'm, I'm expecting the forum to really address because I think that's the number one bottleneck that we have, the one number one obstacle we have to to our dominance. It's the investment, but it also the availability of talent, 
attracting the right people, making the right investments. So I think uh, I'm hoping that those will be key topics that we can uh, we can discuss. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to attending and seeing you there, Vago. Uh, very much uh, the same here. Let me just ask uh, one last follow-up. Uh, when you and I t- spoke in October, a uh, little concern, right? I mean, you were talking about uh, labor shortages, but you were also talking about inflation pressures. And, and I asked you at the time whether or not that would end up, w- whether or not there has to be contractual readjustments and the like. Uh, from from your perspective, a month and a half since last we saw each other, where what are the trend lines looking like for you the across your line, enterprise? The trend lines, Vago, uh, continue, as I told you, uh, when we met at AUSA, we, we are seeing significant pressures on uh, on uh, hourly wages. We're seeing uh, significant pressures on supply chain and cost of commodities. Um, uh, I think that uh, in addition to the cost pressures, it's just an issue of availability, being able to hire people, both engineers and, uh, and uh, frontline manufacturing people, and the ability to get supplies. Um, I think this is still an ongoing crisis that we're, uh, we're watching other industries as well. Um, I read some news about some easing of some of the supply chain bottlenecks. Uh, we're not seeing it yet. Uh, we're, we're working hard on all fronts, both people and supplies, to make sure that we, we don't interrupt operations and we continue delivering to our customers. Uh, Ranan, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Great report, and uh, we certainly look forward uh, to following it as it goes through implementation, right? I mean, at the end of the day, all of this work uh, is is to get the the entire operation moving in a better direction. So thanks so very much. Vago, thank you, and thank you for for, uh, helping us uh, spread the word on this. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now for a look at the Inner Service Industry Training Simulation and Education Conference happening this year live and in person in Orlando, Florida, is uh, Dr. Wes Naylor, a retired United States Navy uh, captain who is the president and CEO of uh, the 50-pound Brains uh, venture. Uh, he is also a professor with the University of Central Florida's Institute for Simulation and Training. And I should also note he is an, a legendary uh, naval aviator and P3 pilot who was a former <laughs> commander of the Naval Air Warfare Center uh, Training Systems uh, Division. Wes, it's an honor and pleasure welcoming you on the program, especially from the floor of ITSEC this year. Uh, Bago, great to be with you again. And uh, yes, uh, I'll apologize in advance for the noise in the background, but uh, that's the noise of great minds at work figuring out how to uh, take care of our warfighters. Uh, that uh, awesome, uh, awesome lead in, uh, Wes. Uh, I should also note for the audience or anybody who was paying attention, uh, Dr. Naylor was among the last of our video guests uh, as we transitioned. Uh, because of the pandemic, we had a terrific visit down to Orlando, Florida. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, uh, we uh, transitioned into a daily podcast that now has a larger audience uh, than ever. So out of hardship, sometimes out of adversity comes triumph. Um, Wes, uh, you know, the pandemic has driven uh, all manner 
of uh, training technologies to proliferate, right? Distance learning has become uh, important. Each of the military services have expanded those programs. Platforms like this, like Zoom that we're using, uh, have also proliferated as, a, as, an ed as educational, uh, proper educational tools. Uh, at the same time, the military services, as, as, we, as you guys heard today from the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, as well as the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, um, we're, we're talking about how the services is going through a training revolution. Obviously, some very major training evolutions uh, this summer. From, from your perspective, where are we? What are the highlight topics at this show? Well, Vago, I think uh, anyone who's been closely tied in with um, the evolution of training knows that uh, you know, the technology march keeps going right along. And you know, it is you know, one of the paradoxical things of out of crisis comes opportunity. And uh, certainly we've seen great advances in the distance learning with uh, the restrictions that were put on by COVID. Some we were ready for, some we were not, both in and out of the military. Um, so that's opened this up, I think, culturally as a more accepted line of how we are going to do some of the training. Uh, I think what it comes back to, again, is a core understanding, though, that no matter what we do, there's a continuum of training. And there's always going to be a place for in-person training. There's going to be a place for distance training. There's going to be a place for uh, extended reality, AR, pick pick your R, um, you know, and with the oncoming things of uh, metaverse and how that's going to play out and what will that mean for the training environment? You know, it's always this march of uh, the systems there, but, you know, in my own mind, I like to many times keep us connected to what's maybe a little bit less sexy, but it's uh, making sure that we're doing the right things with regard to the data and the networks to deliver the training. It's, it's not as sexy as buying a new F-35, but it is vitally important for us to be able to utilize the F-35 to its highest lethality, that we invest in the backbone of data and infrastructure. Um, one of the things that the uh, CNO and the Commandant also were talking about, and, and something that you and I have discussed in the past, is the necessity for having gigantic synthetic uh, training and simulation ranges that allow us to test uh, tactics, uh, procedures, uh, in, in even strategic concepts in a secure way, uh, as far away from prying eyes as we can. Obviously, creating that synthetic cloud that then, by extension, can become, right? I mean, it ties into JADC2 as well, right? The Joint All-Domain Command and Control System. If you get that environment, that combat cloud secure, you can train on it as well as operate on it. What, what, are, what are the keys that we have to bear in mind in order to be able to build this, right? Because you're absolutely right that the, that the data is king, but we're not anywhere near having those sort of, um, having the kind of data strategies that will allow us to achieve the goal you're talking about or the goals that everybody is talking about. No, and I, I agree with that. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, um, you, you've got to be willing to take a real honest look. And, it's not for a lack of us having the tools to do this. Um, it's a lack of will, I would argue, on our part. Um, one of the other things, in addition to the technology that's been pushed out in front of us over the past few years, and I worked closely with uh, uh, Secretary Gertz's office uh, right before the pandemic on this, we were working this, is pushing out more rapid ways of doing acquisition. But that's a cultural piece as well. And much like where we are with the technology, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's are we going to use it in a way that we can 
and free ourselves from past biases of things need to be done through DFARS. Well, yes, that's for some things, but a lot of the things that we're working on at the edge of technology, we should absolutely be utilizing. And some of the services are doing this marvelously. I, I have to give kudos to the Air Force, their entire AppWorks um, infrastructure and uh, ecosystem they put together. They are really driving some things forward to make rapid acquisition possible. But then we get trapped by our own culture, mixing the worst of all possible worlds. And instead of accelerating into commercial technologies, again, we're binding the commercial technologies with antiquated acquisition policy. So, you know, we can get out there and get these high technology ready level, readiness level um, systems and data systems and cloud. And as I said, you know, pick your R and bring those together. But oftentimes what we really have to do is get out of our own way so that we can do it at the speed of business. And despite a lot of good, well-meant direction, we haven't managed to do that. We really need to double down on our ability to bring in technologies at the speed of business and for us to operate our business of DOD and the services at the speed of business. I really see that as one of the absolute keys to us being able to stay ahead and regain in some places with our peer competitors. Um, but everybody says that, right? I mean, you, you've written, uh, you know, two pieces uh, that come to mind, right? Changing the culture of no, because uh, our culture, unfortunately, has been a culture of no. Even the Navy that prides itself on beg forgiveness instead of asking permission uh, can be characterized by a, a, a culture of no. And at the same time, you wrote, you know, so you want a revolution. Well, in order to have a revolution, you have to have culture change, right? I mean, that's b- b- at the heart of both of those. Wes, how do you change the culture? Because it doesn't really matter you know, the technology could be there for you to change everything from how you do ab initio pilot training uh, all the way to, um, you know, any other field, right? But flight line uh, skills, Um, you know, what are the things that have to happen to change the culture to the agile culture that you're talking about? Because I think that's at the heart of, that's at the heart of the problem, right? I, 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 no, I think you're exactly Correct. And, you know, I think the challenge, and I, I can take it from my own, uh, you know, my own experience as a naval aviator and you know, flying venerable uh, P3 Orion, you know, we saw this, you know, sexy P8 coming down the line and all of us older aviators looked at that and we said, oh my gosh, you know, the guys, young kids coming up, the young aviators, they'll never be able to handle all this technology. You know, that's so overwhelming. How in the world would they do that? Well, you know what? That was us culturally projecting our fears onto them. The truth of the matter is they were already there. You know, they've been growing up with an iPad in their hand. They handled technology better than we could ever conceive of handling technology as a senior officer. And they took to it like duck to water. You know, the, the ability to train the pilots, to get them to acclimate to the technology, which is making it actually easier to fly the plane than hand flying a P3 back in the day. Um, I think that's really where the argument comes in, whether it's in the administration of training side or the acquisition side of it. It's not the culture of the up and comers, the people coming to the party uh, as new accessions that we have to change. We have to change the culture of those who have been making the decisions based on their own cultural biases of that's too complex. I don't understand that. 
other people won't understand it as well, which is not the case. We have got an entire generation of warfighters who are, you know, whether you want to call them digital natives or whatever you want to, term you want to apply, who are fully comfortable being immersed in these technologies that we use for training, that we use for distributed education. And they're already there in that culture. It's the leadership that has to catch up with them so that we can unleash you know, what they have to offer. Uh, technology at the end of the day plays a key role in this. What are the technological developments that you're tracking that you think are going to be uh, most important to moving a needle, whether it's the, you know, the, the reduction in cost in virtual reality technologies uh, to, you know, increasing computing power, the cloud, what are, what are some of the elements that you think are most uh, potentially game-changing? And, you know, again, I always go back to my mantra of it's all, if data is king, it's all about how we capture the data, how we use the data. So investing in a robust IT backbone that allows us to make sense and useful information out of all the data we derive for training and everything else is at the key point of that. You know, the, the tools at the end of it, certainly we've seen great improvement in haptics. And you said, you know, the metaverse is still out there to unfold in front of us as to how that's going to be. That's something we definitely need to keep a watch on. But, you know, also, as we said, we'll never get away from the fact that it's a continuum. And as we're coming out of the current stage of the pandemic, like I think we're seeing that this is something because of the mega trends of larger cities, more people that, you know, we're going to have these type of occurrences uh, that affect our training and everything else. And the continuum of training requires us to have in-person training as well. And it's important for us to use the technologies that allow that. Uh, you know, personally, I've gotten involved with a, uh, a company called Healthy who uses a novel waveform of UVC that's friendly to humans that allows people to be in close proximity in a way they haven't been able to do before. And it comes to that idea of how do we bring technologies to bear that allow us to continue operations in those places where people have to be. Training is one of those. So I think we also need to take a look at the schoolhouses and say, what technologies can we bring in to make sure this is a safe and productive environment to work in. So, you know, there's a lot of great technologies out there that cross the entire continuum of training. Um, and, you know, as we've discussed before, for, for me, it's always been don't focus on the bright, shiny object, necessarily the delivery vehicle, you know, whether it's a, an iPhone or whether it's a Google Glass or whether it's magically, you know, those change. What matters is what data and content are we pushing and how are we measuring how the learner is interacting with that? Because that gives us the information if we're creating knowledge in those people. And that's what we really need to focus on. Wes, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, know how busy you are down there on the show floor. Sorry we couldn't be there uh, with you this year, but looking forward to joining you next year. Thanks so very much. Absolutely, Vago. Great to talk to you. I hope you have a great weekend. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.